The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. If you're like a lot of us, you're just waking up to reality with a holiday spending hangover. And just released numbers from the Federal Reserve indicate credit card debt is creeping up, now reaching pre-pandemic levels. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back and good afternoon. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com filling in for Drew. Taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. You know, it's uh, getting towards the end of the month here, and that's when the bills start coming due from the previous month. And uh, as, the, as the intro there spoke about, a lot of people are going to start looking at the, the hangover from their Christmas shopping because a lot of us ran it up on credit. And that sound may sound a little odd because, of course, there were there were issues about getting uh, Christmas gifts and the right type of Christmas gifts and what you wanted to have on the list and all that because of the the supply chain crisis. But we still found a way to spend, and um, some of that spending actually was front loaded in October and, and November more so than December. So people may already be behind on getting this taken care of. Joining us to discuss this today is Paul Oster. He's the CEO of Better Qualified LLC, a company that specializes in business and consumer credit services. He's an expert in how the major credit bureaus operate and a professional speaker at financial and banking conferences. You can find out more at betterqualified.com. And it looks like we may have lost Paul, just for a moment, we'll get him back on for just a, in, in just a moment. But um, when we get him back on, we're going to talk a little bit about what the status is of the uh, of credit right now in uh, among consumers and how people can get out from underneath a um, a uh, a credit crunch. And I think that in this particular economy. Uh, that is something that's going to be a a bigger problem than. We might have seen in other, you know, in other times. It looks like we might have Paul back on the line. Paul Oster, welcome back, and great to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me back on. Well, Paul, I mean, this is um, this is actually a little surprising, right? Because we've been hearing a lot about supply chains, about how people weren't getting things, about how you know people were going to scale down perhaps this Christmas, and actually retail sales were off in December, and so you kind of think that that might indicate that, um, hey, maybe maybe people were just weren't spending and they're being a little bit more uh, careful with their with their money and their credit. That's not really what happened uh, this holiday season, apparently. No, and you have to remember, we had somewhat of an extended holiday season. Lots of the retailers, yep. um, you know, came out a little bit earlier than they normally would, extended the sales, quote-unquote sales. And, and a lot of this spending comes with what I call the hidden holiday expenses, the travel, the updated wardrobes, the entertainment, you know, bottles of wine and champagne, and all of those things go into it also. It's not just the gift buying. But look, the reality is almost half of consumers that actually have a credit card increase their balances at, at the start and during the pandemic the holidays just made it that much worse. So this is one of those hangovers that you didn't get to enjoy, you know, the, the front part of it with the cheer. Um, this is a hangover that's just going to cause people, you know, some problems because when you're talking about credit card debt, you have to remember that when you increase your credit card balances, your credit scores go down. 
So as right. soon as you, it's called your utilization ratio. It's the second biggest piece of the scoring factors. So uh, your payment history is number one, but the second piece is, is um, your utilization ratio. And that's the difference between your credit card balances to your credit limits. And, and as soon as you go over 30%, those scores are going to come down and they're going to come down fast. Now that is interesting. I hadn't heard about the 30% of that. So when, if, because you, you get these, you know, missives in the mail and, and by text and email that, Hey, we've just increased your credit balance. So you can, now you can spend $10,000 rather than $5,000 and that sort of thing. But if let's say it gets bumped up to 10,000, the minute you go over 3000, that is a, that gives you a negative impact. Even if you're paying the, the bill off at the end of the month. That's right. That's right. So a lot of people, like you just said, they do not understand how that works. Um, but depending upon when the creditors report the data to the credit bureaus, when the bureaus update their statements, um, a lot of times, even when you're paying it off, it looks like you're carrying large balances. So you have to be very careful about ever increasing those balances over 30% of the credit limits. So let me ask you about, uh, I, mean, I think when we're talking about credit cards, I think most people think about, you know, Visa cards, MasterCards, you know, the, the, the sort of the universal revolving credit um, accounts that I think almost everybody has now in one form or another. What about retailer credit? You know, you go into a particular retail and you, and you open up a credit line with them because you get the fabulous discounts for using their card. I mean, how does that factor into this? Is that actually worse than dealing with the, uh, with the large-scale universal revolving credit? Yeah, so it's, it's not better or worse. It's actually the same thing. So anytime you have the ability to pay a minimum payment, right? So you don't have to pay it off in full. It's not a charge card. It's a credit card. It's a revolving line of credit. Anytime you have the option to pay a minimum payment, that's a revolving line of credit. And it's the same thing as, you know, the big bank. So if you get a direct credit card from JCPenney, um, the reality is it's, it's backed by Visa or, or sure. uh, Citibank or one of them anyway. But um, you have to keep those balances, you know, uh, below 30% also. Now, we had a, uh, a, a newcomer, you know, you, now you have these buy now, pay later um, programs that are out there. These are unregulated financial products, okay? And whenever you hear unregulated and finance, run the other way, okay? Uh, again, well over 50% of the consumers who got into these buy now, pay later, uh, I call them scams, um, although they are legitimate, um, but they got into these buy now, pay later programs, over half of them didn't understand the terms and conditions. And now we're seeing a tremendous default rate uh, on those programs. And that is also going to have a negative impact on their credit scores. We are speaking with Paul Oster, CEO of Better Qualified LLC, and taking your calls at 888-914-9149. If you've got uh, questions about credit, either yours or just in general, feel free to join the conversation. Paul, I, I guess I don't want to get too much into um, naming names here, but if you have a card that requires you to pay off your balance at the end of every month, say a card that sort of sounds similar to Schmamerican Express, because <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's the only card I know that actually requires you to do that, um, yeah. and even they have revolving credit now. I mean, what, is, what does that do if you, if you have a non-revolving credit line where you have to pay it off at the end of every month? Does that have 
uh, uh, does that have less of an impact on your credit rating first off? And secondly, uh, how does that figure into your overall uh, debt, you know, uh, uh, debt to assets uh, standard? Yeah, so it, it, it is not factored into your utilization ratio. It's actually considered an open line of credit. But there is, uh, there are factors, score factors. Re remember this, and this is the crazy part about everything. No one knows the exact formula that FICO, that's the Fair Isaac Corporation, those are the folks that actually generate these credit scores. Nobody knows the exact formula and algorithm. They do tell us, you know, they give us pie charts and say these are the score factors. But an American Express card is a charge card. It's considered an open card. Your credit limit is actually based upon the highest balance you've ever carried. And you do get, you know, uh, the benefit of credit history uh, from an open card like that. There is a factor that we're not exactly sure of, of how it affects the score model um, based upon, again, how you use that card if you continue to carry uh, or put large balances on the card, even if you're paying them off, that is not going to be a good thing for your credit score. So uh, I think the general rule here is um, keep all balances, whether it's an open card, a revolving card, an installment contract. You know, if you can keep those balances below 30%, you're going to be better off. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the other thing, too, is uh, one last question about forms of credit before we get into how to fix problems once you find yourself in the middle of them. Maybe talk a little bit about how people actually do find themselves in the middle of problems here. But there's there are, um, one last category here would be um, debt uh, with retailers that are, you know, 12-month um, zero interest type of things. So that's usually for large purchases, right? Single large purchases. You don't usually use that as a revolving credit. You're, you're buying a, a couple of major appliances. You're buying some sort of, you know, um, home uh, home repair sort of thing at um, at uh, uh, hardware stores, that sort of yeah. thing. How does that impact? Uh, how does that impact your 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 credit standing? And uh, I mean, certainly all of the other factors apply here. But does that impact your your credit standing? Does that impact your utilization? And what are the risks of that for you? So it's really going to come down to whether or not the the creditor, the individual creditor. Uh, is going to report that information to the credit bureaus in the first place. And a lot of times creditors will only report certain information um, if there's a negative event. There's late payments, it actually goes into collection status, that will get reported. Um, so it's really up to the individual creditor whether or not they're going to report it. And look, creditors have to pay for the privilege to report this information to the credit bureaus. So right. that's also why sometimes an account may only be uh, reported to TransUnion, Equifax, or Experian. That is also the reason why you could have three very, very different credit scores uh, between the three bureaus. So it, it, it pays to ask some of these questions before you get involved in a, you know, an agreement with one of these creditors. Do you actually report this information to the credit bureaus? Because, look, it could actually help build someone's credit, right? Yeah, unfortunately, the only way to do that is actually to use credit. Um, yeah. We see a lot of situations where people come to us and they say, Paul, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to uh, get a mortgage or some type of finance. And they said, I don't even have a credit score. But you know, I pay all my bills in time. And I only use my debit card or cash. I never use credit cards. Shouldn't I have excellent credit? Well, the, unfortunately, the answer is no. 
because the FICO score is actually built on the monthly activity um, and credit history and the fact that you can demonstrate the ability to manage that debt. So without, in the absence of that, you might have a situation where it comes back N.A. You don't have a score. There's no score available. Right. And again, we're speaking with Paul Oster, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Let's go to Jennifer in Coal Valley, Illinois. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I'm going to I'm going to um, try to get you off of my – I'm on my way home, and I'm trying to not affect the call quality. Um, well, so far you're my, good. My question – oh, okay. My question is um, – I I have PayPal, and one of the options on PayPal is to pay in four in, uh, equal increments. Um, does that affect your score at all? It's a great question. It can. It, it can. So if you're using PayPal credit, um, that is going to be factored into your score. So although, again, it, it kind of makes sense if they're doing it for interest-free, you have six months, uh, to pay it off during the time that you're carrying balances, again, that are higher, 30% higher than the credit limits, that will have a negative impact on your overall score. And and I think it, one of the other things, too, that I should mention, just to follow, circle back a bit on the, um, you know, 12 months, no interest, 24 months, no interest, is that if you don't get those things paid off in that in that time, you end up paying the entire interest for the entire entire period. Uh, that's right. And that's what's it, happening with those buy now, pay later programs. Also, um, people got involved. And what happens is there's a tendency to spend more than you would, because now you're saying, well, wait a second. I have I have all this time to pay. off, And the reality <laughs> is, you know, it's a blink of an eye, relatively speaking, and people don't have a plan. So, look, uh, another general rule of thumb is if you cannot pay something off within three months, don't buy it, right? There's right. a big difference between what we need and what we want. So if it's not going to have a negative impact on your family's health, uh, your shelter, your, your basic needs, then don't buy it because this is something that you want. It's not something that you need. And again, ultimately, if you cannot pay it off within three months, simply don't buy it. Let's go to Anna in Miami, who has another good question for us. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I would like to know if any student loans are a negative impact on your credit. They're, I mean, if they're up to date and everything. Good question. Uh, I'm not sure. Paul, did you hear I'm that sorry, question? I missed, I missed part of that. Oh, and she just wanted to know if student loans, if they're up to date, do student loans count against your credit score? Uh, now, no, I, they know, will not. Actually, you know, student loans are actually very, very powerful. Uh, it's a great way for younger folks, which have, you know, tend to have thin credit profiles. That's an installment contract, right? So there's, there's two different types of accounts. Installment contracts where you have fixed payments, student loans, car payments, mortgages, and those revolving uh, trade lines, and, and that's your credit card. So student loans are very, very powerful and can actually help somebody increase their scores, build their credit. Um, but... You know, you get a 30-day late payment on a student loan, and it could have a tremendous negative impact also. So that's something to bear in mind, and a great call. Thank you very much. Um, now, Paul, let's talk a little bit about what happens when people find themselves in trouble, because this happens quite a bit. I mean, when I was 
just a, when I was a young adult, just starting out, I got a couple of credit cards, got myself in a lot of trouble, and then managed to claw my way back out of that within a couple of years. But it, it cost me, it cost me maybe two or three times whatever it was that I actually spent, um, you know, or, or at least the value of the goods that I got out of those credit cards in order to get out from underneath yes. them. I mean, this is, this is a this is a difficult situation that many, many Americans find themselves in. And maybe during the pandemic when, when uh, you know, the income was spotty and they really needed to use that kind of credit to tide themselves over until the income started flowing in again. Uh, I would imagine that, and you can tell us this for sure, I would imagine that this situation is actually much worse now than maybe it would be otherwise. Uh, there, there's no doubt. So, Look, you have to identify the problem. The first thing you have to do is say, okay, I'm in trouble here, right? So figure out your household budget. We're we're basically all on fixed income. So where is this money going to come from to pay down this debt? Look at your expenses, right? Unfortunately, most people, they don't analyze their credit card statements. They simply breeze through it. You know, if it doesn't have three digits, I'm I'm not even going to pay attention to it. And just look at subscriptions, right? Uh, we're a subscription-based uh, uh, country right now. Four ninety-nine for Apple Music, uh, Spotify, Sirius, um, Netflix, all of these subscription-based models. When you have a family of three, four, five people, it could literally be hundreds of dollars a month in subscriptions. So eliminate the subscriptions, eliminate the impulsive buys. Again, if if you don't need it, you know, don't buy it. Right. So right. Get out of debt as quickly as you possibly can. It should be everyone's number one goal. It, when you look at a return on investment, if you're paying credit card interest rates that are 20% or higher, like most people, uh, you know, 29% is as high, um, every dollar that you put towards that credit card debt is like getting a, a return on your money 20%, 29%, because you're not paying the interest on it the following month. So come up with a household budget. Look, if you embrace technology, there's simply no excuse not to have a household budget in place at this point. They're free. You can go online. You can you know, download an app and, and track everything on your phone and figure out exactly how much money comes in, how much money comes out. And believe me, people say this all the time. You know, We've been doing this for 16 years. Most of the clients, once we put it on paper or show it to them okay, online, they say, oh, Paul, I wish I would have done this last year, two years ago, 10 years ago. But the reality is that most people don't understand that there is money available. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you're living in this you know, 30-day crisis mode, do something about it. Don't just accept it. You know, make a change in your daily habits. Again, I tell everybody, stay out of the convenience stores. Don't go to Starbucks for your coffee and pay $4. And people say, oh, come on, that's one of life's little guilty pleasures. Okay, so then go once a week. Go twice a week. Don't go every single day. And I am telling you, at the end of the month, you're going to say, okay, I have $100 that I can apply towards my credit card debt. When you're paying down credit card debt, there's lots of different, uh, you know, philosophies or, or, or uh, models that are out there. I will tell you, mathematically proven, the fastest way to pay off credit card debt is called debt stacking. You take the credit card with the highest interest rate and whatever monies you're going to pay extra, you put it towards one card until it's paid off in full. Um, it, uh, 
you have to pay all of the other minimums on the credit on, on the course, other credit yeah. cards. But uh, a big mistake people make is let's say they find an extra hundred dollars at the end of the month. It makes them feel good to pay an extra twenty five on this card, an extra twenty five on that card, an extra twenty five on that card. Take the entire hundred dollars, apply it towards one card, and continue to do that month after month until your credit card debt is, is paid off in full. We are speaking with Paul Oster, CEO of Better Qualified. That's betterqualified.com, where you can uh, find out more about that. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a question that's, uh, that's, that's on the panel right now. The audio is not, not clear, so I'm going to ask the question uh, for Pat in Miami. Uh, medical bills that go to collection, do those affect your credit score? Unfortunately, they do. You know, there is a new FICO scoring model um, that discounts uh, medical collections uh, specifically. Unfortunately, it could be years and years and years until banks adopt the new credit score model, uh, especially with mortgages. Most banks are still using the FICO 04 model, which is, you know, it's almost 20 years old at this point. So lots of other updates have, have been made available. The problem is the banks have the ability not to adopt the new scoring model. So right, right now, medical uh, debts will impact your, your credit for sure. So uh, you have to figure out a way you know, to kind of try and avoid that. Paul, um, we've got about a minute left here. Let's say you, you're a consumer and you are just so buried in these things that the extra 100 bucks isn't, isn't really going to do it. You need an intervention. Where do you go uh, to, to, to sort of get a reset? How do, you, how do you go about getting a reset so you can get on top of this, get out of the crisis? So face it head on. You know, unfortunately, a lot of consumers go into what I call bunker mode. They don't answer the door. They don't, you know, they don't open the mail. Forget about the phone. Um, that's not the way to do it. Contact the creditors. A lot of creditors actually have their own credit management programs. But, you know, seek out some trusted resources. Referrals are, are always great. Peer referrals. Um, get, work, ask somebody who's worked with a company uh, prior to. Check out the Better Business Bureau. What you don't want to do is, you know, hear the guy, you know, it's 2 o'clock in, in the morning. You, you can't sleep. You're in debt. And you hear some crazy commercial, um, and, and you do it that way. So don't let them find you. <clears throat> Be very proactive and seek out a reputable company uh, that can help you. If you do it the other way, unfortunately, there's lots and lots of scams that are still out there. Uh, and you could, want, you could you, you know, find yourself in a worse position than when you started. Paul Oster, thank you so much for being with us. Again, Paul Oster is at betterqualified.com, betterqualified.com. Go there, check that out as well. And uh, great advice. Face things head on. That is great advice. Paul, thanks for being with us. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. I'm a fan of yours. I listen to your replay at night on the Relevant Radio app. It's the Drew Mariani Show. Working graveyard as a mail handler. On Relevant Radio. It's 30 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com. Filling in for Drew today. And don't forget to stick around. 
after this show is over, the Kale Clark Show comes on next. Kale interviews Jared Veldheer, who went viral for going from the NFL to providing soul food at his kids' Catholic school. So more on that at 5 p.m. Central today on the Kale Clark Show, so be sure to stick around for that as well. I just want to thank everybody um, who called in. I just want to uh, make a quick mention that... Uh, you know, Paul Oster said, you know, face, face your issues head on, talk to your creditors. Most of the time, they're going to be pretty reasonable about trying to work out payment plans because they want to recover, recover as much of the debt as they possibly can with as little, um, as little drama as possible, just the same way that you want to get out uh, with as little drama as possible. Also, if you talk to the credit bureaus too, uh, usually um, uh, the, the credit bureaus, Trans, TransUnion, I think it is, Experian, um, they will um, uh, they will usually have some ways or at least some resources uh, uh, to refer you to uh, for any sort of consumer help. So those are all great pieces of advice from Paul. So just make sure that uh, make sure that you do that and uh, just you know pray and um, maybe offer maybe ask for some prayers at the um, at the Chapel of Divine Mercy for that too. I mean there's uh, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of help out there in one form or another for you, and that's what this uh, that's what Relevant Radio is all about. Uh, now let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Supreme Court because there was news today. The Supreme Court has decided to take two cases, two challenges to affirmative action plans at colleges, at, at major universities. One is at Harvard University, a private school, and the other is at the University of North Carolina, a public school. Uh, they are, the Supreme Court announced today that they're going to consolidate those two cases into one argument or one, one, one presentation, um, likely in the next term. So it's probably not going to be something that's going to come up right away. But this was, I would say, a little bit of a surprise. And here to discuss that with us is Wen Fa, the senior attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation. He has litigated cases in all of Pacific Legal's practice areas and focuses on equality before the law and free speech. Wen was one of the primary attorneys in two of Pacific Legal's recent Supreme Court cases, Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky and Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid. You can find out more online at pacificlegal.org. And uh, welcome to the show, Wen. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, I was a little surprised for a couple of reasons about this. The the first surprise is that um, normally the Supreme Court likes to punt an awful lot, right? I mean, they're, they're not usually eager to take cases, um, especially cases that are going to have uh, a lot of heated public commentary um, that are very controversial. So usually they'll wait until there is a, uh, a conflict at the appellate level. One, one uh, appellate court rules one way, another appellate court rules another way, and the Supreme Court is forced to, to take that on. That wasn't the case here with the two, uh, with with the Harvard case and the North Carolina case. I, I'm not aware that there was a conflict at the appellate level on these. Uh, so here, there couldn't have been a conflict because uh, the Supreme Court, in a 2003 decision, uh, ruled that racial preferences were okay if they were narrowly tailored to further uh, an interest in diversity in higher education. Right. So because this, that's what the Supreme Court held, uh, lower courts are bound to follow Supreme Court precedent. But our friends at the Students for Fair Admissions who brought both of these cases uh, made a very compelling argument, uh, one that we think is right, that that decision should be overruled because the Equal Protection Clause in the Civil Rights Act, they prohibit racial discrimination everywhere. 
the Supreme Court in Grutter carved out an exception for uh, higher education, but there is no reason that there should be an exception uh, to allow racial discrimination at higher education. And we hope that's why the Supreme Court took up both these cases at Harvard and UNC. Yeah, and I think I think there's uh, you know, certainly a, a, a solid argument along those lines. This is something that the Supreme Court has been reconsidering incrementally for decades, right? I mean, Backey was the original decision that, that sort of um, pressed the issue that you couldn't have an outright you know, racial quota. Um, this is, Backey would have been, what, 83 or so? I think it was UCLA. Um, this is deep in the mists of my memory, so you've probably got a much better, a much firmer grasp on this than, than I do. But, but I mean, the Supreme Court has, has been sort of incrementally limiting affirmative action policies in, um, in higher education. Uh, the last one was 2003, but as late as 2000, or as early as 2006, I think John Roberts was saying, we're eventually going to have to wrap this up because, um, you know, this is just not sustainable. Constitutionally, this is not sustainable. So I, I'm not surprised that there's an interest in this. I'm just surprised that they decided to reach out at this particular point in time in what looks to be a way of just saying, okay, this is, we've reached the end of the line on this policy. Yeah, so so Baki, as you mentioned, that was a uh, medical school, I believe, UC Davis, where the court said yes. uh, quotas, racial quotas, 16 seats set aside was unconstitutional. And I think you're right, ever since then, the Supreme Court has been grappling with this issue. And since 2003, there were two cases dealing with racial preferences at the University of Texas at Austin that also made its way up to the Supreme Court. But I think what the Supreme Court has um, actually recognized in the time since Grutter is, although Grutter was uh, meant as uh, to permit only um, a sliver of racial discrimination, which uh, you know I think that in, its, in itself is wrong, uh, universities have really treated that decision as an unqualified endorsement of using uh, racial discrimination. So you can see at universities like Harvard, which isn't subject to the Equal Protection Clause, but is subject to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act because it accepts federal funds, uh, routinely discriminates against Asian American students by uh, giving them lower low person, personality scores. So although these students, in a lot of cases, have higher academics, higher extracurricular activities, they are being portrayed as people with weak leadership skills, uh, who are who don't work as well um, on teams. And this is actually contradicted by the alumni inter interviewers who actually interview these applicants and assign them high scores. So we see the pernicious effect of racial balancing at schools like Harvard, and that's what I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will correct with these cases. Yeah, I mean, this is this has actually been quite a bit in the news. The the Harvard case in particular has been pretty well covered. I've read articles in, in lots of different mainstream media outlets. Wall Street Journal had quite a bit on this. I think the New York Times covered it pretty well as well. And uh, lots of commentary about Harvard's practices in regards to, uh, uh, you know, Asian American uh, students. This is, this is the type of thing that I think it's sort of the reductio ad absurdum uh, when I would uh, I, I put it that way. Uh, what what you get when you start, not even start, I guess, but when, when you go through the process of what you called racial balancing, right? And this is something that starts off with all sorts of good intentions, right? A lot of these, uh, all sorts of things start off with good intentions, but have, you know, bad outcomes or at least, you know, uh, 
on balance bad outcomes. And the good intention here is to recognize initially, and I'm talking in the 1960s, 1970s, was to recognize that educational opportunities for lower income and minority uh, students were 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 less. Were you know they they didn't have they were disadvantaged in that sense, and because of that, had difficulty accessing. Uh, higher education, and so affirmative action was put in place to 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 rectify that. Um, now, as a policy, certainly that's debatable, but that was the context in which this was taking place. But the end result of this is to purposefully disadvantage certain groups of of students in you know in real time, rather than just say, well, this is you know racial balancing. We have to make sure that everybody's got an equal shot. That's not actually how it ends up. Um, unfolding, and this is the reason why uh, the the policies at Harvard became such a flashpoint for this. Yeah, so affirmative action, as it was used in the '60s, I think it encompassed a lot of programs that did not involve racial preferences and racial discrimination. Right. Yes. And, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, to the extent that the government wants to create outreach programs. Uh, things like that. I, if they're not based on race, I don't think we would be opposed to that. In fact, I think we we think that there should be a stronger pipeline. And in fact, a lot of Pacific Legal Foundation's work is in the K through through 12 level, where we oppose racial discrimination at uh, K through 12 schools that do serve as pipelines to, to elite universities such as Harvard. So we think that there are a lot of race neutral ways to ensure that people are getting the opportunity that they need to thrive. Um, but racial preferences, they don't just hurt the people that, uh, you know, are denied a seat at a university uh, because, because of such preferences. They also hurt people who get a seat at a university because of such preferences because, you know, these academic metrics, while not perfect, they are very predictive of one's ability to thrive in the higher education environment. So when you allow people with lower scores to get into the, these environments, whether it would be because of a racial preference, a legacy preference, or what have you, they are they tend to do worse uh, than other students who are otherwise qualified. So, so we think that racial preferences hurt all students, and that's why we think that there should be race-neutral alternatives that are considered by these schools. And we are speaking with Wen Foss, Senior Attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation, pacificlegal.org, and uh, talking about um, affirmative action and the Supreme Court's uh, decision to take this up. So if you'd like to join the conversation, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. You know, I think that, the, you know, that, that is actually one of the responses that you get when people challenge the idea of uh, affirmative action. And I think it's a fair point, right? Which is that, well, a lot of these schools, especially Ivy League private institutions like Harvard, do have, or at least did have, uh, legacy programs, right? The the children of uh, alumni um, get some preferential treatment, either formally or informally, uh, just by recognition of, you know, family connections. That's certainly true of people who are wealthier, and have have family connections at the school, that sort of thing, and that this is more or less just a way to balance that out. I think what you're arguing here is there's a point to be made there. Those students really shouldn't be in that type of competitive environment because they're not going to do well. They might do better in a different um, higher education environment, something with less pressure, something with uh, something that uh, you know a, a place where 
their their abilities will allow them to compete rather than you know the Harvard or even University of North Carolina. Certainly, so there have been many studies done um, that show that a lot of students who get in through preferences, uh, they tend not to major in uh, what are sometimes called harder majors in engineering and sciences, um, and, and instead pick generally easier majors. Um, and we think that's wrong. You know, we think that, uh, you know, one doesn't certainly have to major in engineering. I, I didn't, but, um, but students should be able to choose uh, what kind of career path uh, they want to follow. They should be able to work towards their dreams, and uh, racial preferences should not get in the way of that, regardless of whether it burdens or benefits any particular student. But, you know, back to your earlier point, I, I, I do think that although this might not be an equal protection uh, issue, I think that legacy preferences are also wrong and inconsistent with a university's mission. But I do think that legacy preferences, or, or sorry, racial preferences have uh, given some cover to legacy preferences and that a lot of people think that those two things balance each other out. So I think once we end racial preferences at the college level, that's one step closer towards uh, ending legacy preferences as well and moving uh, more towards a merit-based system, which is uh, what I think it should be. Well, yes, and I, I, I agree with you on that. I, you know, it's interesting that people would see that as a balance when basically they're producing the same result. They're they're um, they're promoting students that probably would be better someplace else. Um, and it, depending on what the environment is, and Harvard is an extremely competitive environment. It's one of the reasons why they have such such restrictive admissions, right? They're trying to get the you know the cream of the crop. So that's academically speaking, I'm, I'm saying, and so that's one of the issues there. But Harvard, you mentioned this earlier. Harvard's a private institution, right? So if Harvard wants to do legacy admissions, that's up to them. I mean, to a certain extent, there's there, there's a lot more flexibility. Although, like you said, with Title VI, because they are accepting federal dollars for tuition, they are required to abide by Title VI. <clears throat> but the University of North Carolina, which is also part of this um, case, that's a different kettle of fish. That's a public institution. It's run by the state. There's more issues in how those admissions are handled. And is that the, the easier case or is it, or are they both pretty straightforward? It's just that there's, that there's just more context for UNC. So the Supreme Court has held that the, the standards are the same under Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause. So I think the standard that the Supreme Court will apply will be the same to both. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think UNC is in some ways, uh, like you said, a more straightforward case in that it is a public actor, it's a state actor, so it's bound by that equal protection principle no matter what, whereas Harvard, if it decided tomorrow, Harvard has a massive endowment, as, as you, you might be able to guess, uh, it could say that we want to stop uh, receiving federal funding, and once it stops receiving federal funding, uh, it's, it's free to uh, do what it wants in terms of uh, in terms of admission. Now, we, we don't think that makes discriminating on the basis of race right. Um, I, we, we think it's still wrong, but Title VI only applies to institutions that is, accept federal funding. So I think that's one aspect in which the Harvard case differs uh, from the UNC case. So, yes, I mean, so there, there, there's going to be at least some differences here, but I think that the fact that the Supreme Court is taking them both up together is a recognition that 
this is this is basically going to be the same argument in in both cases uh, in terms of constitutionality for affirmative action programs in higher education. I think so. I mean, sometimes the court uh, sort of splits the baby as it did with the, the Guter and Gratz case uh, concerning the University of Michigan and the University of Michigan Law School. The Supreme Court said the, the racial preferences at the undergraduate institution was unconstitutional and the racial preferences at the law school was constitutional. Um, but here, I, I do think that your prediction would is more likely to be right where the Supreme Court holds that these racial preferences, whether at UNC or at Harvard, uh, they're both unconstitutional. So, and that, that's a ruling that we are hoping for and one that we think is consistent with the principle uh, embedded in both constitution and statutes of equality before the law. We are speaking with Wen Fa, senior attorney, senior attorney, excuse me, with Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, and taking your calls at 888-914-9149. When we come back after the break, I want to talk about what the range of action that the Supreme Court has in front of it, what it might do, and see what where we're going to go with affirmative action in this country. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Get connected. Drew Mariani on Relevant Radio. It's 50 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Don't forget to stay tuned for the Kale Clark Show coming up right after this. We are speaking with Wen Fa, senior attorney, not senior eternity. There was much, uh, when there was much um, mirth and merriment over the idea of a senior eternity um, uh, during the break. <laughs> Among the uh, among the uh, producers here, your senior it attorney with Pacific Legal Foundation, PacificLegal.org. Um, I'm not sure what a junior eternity would look like. I prefer the senior eternity, but um, but uh, when we were talking about the um, we were talking about the uh, decision by the Supreme Court to take up these cases at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Clearly, they want to do something, right? I mean, they, I don't think they would have reached out to to accept uh, to grant cert on both of these cases and combine them up if you didn't have at least four justices that were willing to to do something uh, on affirmative action. Um, it, it takes four justices to grant cert, um, and I suspect that there's probably more that want to take some sort of action. What is What do you see as the potential range of action? I know what it is that you want, but what is the potential range of action here for the Supreme Court to do? Well, I think there's always um, a large potential range of things that the Supreme Court could do. Uh, for example, the Supreme Court could uphold um, the policies at one or both of these universities. The Supreme Court can uh, apply the court's decision in Grutter and either uphold or strike down uh, the policies at one or both of these universities. Uh, or the uh, scenario that we're hoping for is that the Supreme Court overrules its decision in Grutter and uh, strikes down the policies at both of these universities. Uh, Grutter was a wrong decision that carved out an exception uh, to the anti-discrimination mandate in the context of higher education. 
And we see pernicious effects following Bruder of uh, this leading to crude stereotyping on the, on, on the part of university admissions officers at Harvard, UNC, and, and all across the country. So this is a little bit different than most uh, questions of overturning precedent. I know that the Supreme Court values stare decisis. I know that the legal community values stare decisis because it, it provides stare decisis, of course, is the is the term for uh, maintaining precedents um, unless there is a really good reason to overturn them uh, because it provides stability, it provides reliability on in terms of crafting laws, crafting policies. If you know what the Supreme Court's already ruled, you can rely on the Supreme Court not to not to deviate too far away from that unless there's, you know, a really pressing cause for that. In this case though, even when they were even at that time, I think it was the 2003 case, the Supreme Court was saying this is not something that's going to last forever. Yes, we're going to go ahead and let this we're going to go ahead and let this continue now, but this is not something that's going to last forever. At some point, this ha- this will end up coming to an end. So they've already kind of signaled it at some point that this is this was considered to be a temporary policy. It was a temporary uh, exception, if you will, one that people, everybody should expect to close up. So the reliability issue and stare decisis is less of a is less of an argument in this case, I would imagine. It's certainly less. Uh, in Gruner, the court set a 25-year sunset period, uh, which is scheduled to end in 2028. Right. Um, this is six years before that, of course. But, you know, we think Gruner was wrong the day it was decided. And when we're talking about reliance interests, I don't think they uh, really apply with equal force here because university administrators shouldn't get to be able to rely on an erroneous decision to be able to continue to discriminate against scores of uh, college and uh, college or applicants to different universities. You know, we think that reliance here has a very pernicious effect and that effect is racial discrimination. And we think that just as, uh, you know, a previous decision by the Supreme court that were wrong and involved racial discrimination has been overruled. Uh, Brown versus board of education, for example, overruled a pernicious, uh, a prior precedent on, uh, in a race case. Uh, we think that Grutter too should be overruled, uh, in favor of guaranteeing every single individual, the constitutional and statutory guarantee of equal treatment before the law. When, if the Supreme Court strikes us down, how does that change? Uh, how does that change things in practical terms in higher education? And does does that would that decision go beyond um, higher education? Would that would that decision have ramifications for other aspects of affirmative action or for you know uh, equal opportunity type of programs? So I think it would have major ramifications. I think a lot of universities are really intent to racially balance their class. And what we've seen in a lot of other contexts, particularly the K through 12 context, was that universities are starting to uh, enact facially neutral laws uh, with a discriminatory effect on students of certain races and also enacted with a discriminatory purpose against the same students. So for example, our clients uh, at Thomas Jefferson High School they're a group of uh, Asian parents and their and their children, and uh, the county believed that Asian Americans were overrepresented at that school, despite being from over 30 countries uh, across the world. 
and revamped the admissions policy to discriminate against Asian American students. The percentage of Asian American students w- w- was the only percentage to go down. Every other race saw their numbers, every other group saw their numbers increase uh, at Thomas Jefferson. So we're going to see a lot more of these facially neutral programs enacted with a discriminatory purpose that leads to a discriminatory effect. But fortunately, my colleagues uh, at Pacific Legal Foundation are fighting back in places like Virginia, places like New York, places like Maryland, and we could easily see one of those cases uh, up at the Supreme Court in the next three to five years. So this is really a, a chance to sort of set a marker uh, using the application in higher education to to make this apply more broadly throughout the entire educational experience. Is this Would this have an effect on housing policies, on other policies in the um, uh, that have you know, federal, uh, you know, sort of federal enforcement of, of, of different policies. Do you think that this would be something that the Supreme Court would would be looking at in terms of either looking at doing because of or worrying about what the impact of this would be on, on other policies as well? Well, I, I, I certainly don't think that there is the need uh, for concern because we have many states, including California, uh, Michigan, Florida, that have already enacted state-based prohibitions on discrimination in public education, public employment, and public contracting. And, you know, we've seen that those schools are, are um, uh, the students perform just as well academically. The students are uh, as diverse, if not more diverse, by any metric. And, you know, so I think that really contradicts the assumption that without racial preferences, without racial discrimination, you can't have students uh, of all backgrounds thrive in uh, the education system. I think that's that just contradicts the experience at the at those states that have already banned racial preferences through state laws and state constitutional amendments. Yeah, really quickly, got less than a minute left. Do you think the Supreme Court takes this up this term or next term? Because I, I, I it wasn't clear this this morning which uh, which term they're taking this up in. Uh, I think this case will be heard in the fall and will be decided uh, in June. Or, or I guess I should say late spring or early summer of 2023. I think that that makes sense too. I think their docket is just uh, a little too, a little too backed up in, in this term. And I think this is something they're going to want to chew on for quite some time. Wenfa, we got about 30 seconds left. Where can people find out more about uh, Pacific Legal Foundation? Uh, they can find uh, more about Pacific Legal on our website at pacificlegal.org. They can find me on Twitter at my Twitter handle, Wenfa1. At Wenfall One, so on Twitter, there you go, and PacificLegal.org, PacificLegal.org. Wenfa, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Very, very important case. We're going to keep our eyes on it very closely. Coming up next, the Kill Clark Show. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. Have a great evening.